Welcome to Marvel Us Disney. Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings at one of the more dynamic divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. My co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and I are recording this on Monday, November 11th, uh, which is the day before Disney Plus launches. But before we get started here, uh, Aaron, you wanted to talk about something you've devoted uh, at least a couple of hours to watching on HBO recently. Yeah, I mean, the Watchmen series was coming out on HBO, and if you're a, a good geek of any sort, you've at least got Watchmen on your radar at some level. You know of its existence. So I had to had to check it out. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, just because of my schedule and my timing, I fell asleep through the first two episodes each week back to back. I don't know why. I went back. Mm-hmm. I tried to watch them again. Again, I watched. I started way too late in the evening and ended up passing out through them both again. So mm-hmm. I just started going, well, maybe this show isn't very good. And then I got to episode three and four and I went, well, maybe maybe I'm just stupid because it seems like this show is actually really great. And I started falling mm-hmm. in love with it. So what I wanted to do was I want to ask all of our listeners, if you got a Twitter account, please tweet at me at Azaprod, A-Z-A-P-R-O-D. And let me know, are you watching The Watchmen? Uh, you can do hashtag watching or hashtag not watching. But also mm-hmm. tell me, do you like it? Is it something that you expected? Because there's a lot, Jim, that have, have got my head going in circles. And I wanted to mm-hmm. broach some of these subjects with you. So one thing right off the bat is the fact that we're getting a squid epidemic going on in the show mm-hmm. on HBO, which harkens mm-hmm. back to the graphic novel, not so much the film that Zack Snyder made, because at the end of mm-hmm. that one, it was Dr. Manhattan that destroyed New York City. But in the old comic version, it was a giant space squid. So mm-hmm. we've got our space squid. I want to know, why are they linking to the comic book version instead of the cinematic version that Zack Snyder gave us? A decade or so ago. Yeah. I mean, it's been it's been 10 years now since the Snyder film was released. And one of the things I enjoyed about that, is, especially given how much I loved the original uh, Dave Givens, Alan Moore uh, graphic novel, was how there were these moments in the Zack Snyder film where literally you'd look at a frame and it's like, that's like they took the panel out of the book and shoved it straight into the camera. Right. I mean, it had it had a dead-on, almost a slavish reproduction of the look of the book. Yeah. I've only seen the first two episodes of the HBO Watchmen relaunch. I have to say that I enjoyed the first two, but half the reason was the fact that they were kind of fast and loose with what they were doing. But every so often, for example, when Archie showed up, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the flying vehicle for the, the owl man, and it looked like it was straight out of not only the, the graphic novel, but also the Zack Snyder film. So it's like, well, how is that here? And it, where's owl man? So that was one of the things that really made me wonder why, why are we in the comic book version when we're, it seems like we're completely taking the cinematic language that was mm-hmm. given to us from the Zack Snyder movie. It seems like you should just go after that instead, do the, mm-hmm. do the follow-up to the cinematic version. So I think that there's got to be some sort of storytelling reason that's kind of behind the reason for sticking with this, the cinematic version. Maybe it'll be a, a parallel dimension kind of deal. Who knows? The talent that's behind this thing is Damon Lindelof. As somebody who religiously watched 
the first season of Lost. And, you know, and he's like, oh, what's the deal with the hatch? And, oh, my God, the light came on inside the hatch. And what's inside the hatch? And, you know, what's the deal with the polar bear? And, you know, over time, I mean, I stuck with Lost all the way to the end. Lost was 100 riddles with only four answers. <laughs> was that kind of where it came? Now, here's the thing. It, he can't still be in the business unless he's learned his lessons from his past mistakes, right? You make a mistake, you learn from it, you get better. So he's not been churning out stuff that's 100 riddles with no answers, right? He's grown. He's moved on. He's changed, right? You know Lucy with the football, right? You know, I just... I, <laughs> Yoinks! I, I don't want to be Charlie Brown again. I mean, I just... I, I so enjoyed what I saw, and I'm really looking forward to seeing episode three and four. I really, really would like to hear from all of our listeners what you think about Watchmen on HBO. A, if you're watching it or not, and then if you are, what do you think of it? Do you like it or do you not? Because well, there's a lot of material of, uh, there. Yeah, uh, great, you know, uh, adaptions that run television lately. I have to tell you, by the way, that, that Nancy's nieces have just discovered Good Omens on, on Amazon and just absolutely love it. Again, between the performances, the production values, the story, you know, it's a, it's a great, great adaptation of the uh, Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. who else wrote the novel? Neil Gaiman. Neil yep. Gaiman. There we go. Yeah. It is perfection personified. It's it's wonderful on every Every count, you know, when it comes to the directing, the acting, the writing, all the nuggets are there from every department. It couldn't be better. And it's interesting you say that because I used to think pretty much the same thing about Martin Scorsese. I mean, it was a guy. I love Casino. I love Goodfellas. I love, you know, especially given that I, I have family that have a history in Dorchester, Massachusetts and with Whitey Bulger. I particularly love The Departed that got into the criminal underbelly of, of Boston. But I, I have to say, and I apologize, folks, I know we talked about this in the last show, but Martin's continually talking about the cinematic universe, oh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is kind of it's making me not want to seek out the Irishman, which is something I've really, really been looking forward to. Really? His his comments about what he thinks about one thing is going to change your uh, viewing habits about something completely different? I mean, it's a crime drama movie that, that he's selling and, and one superhero related. And I really don't care what he says one way or another. I'll still watch his movies. And if he doesn't like Marvel movies, well, to him. And uh, I'll go watch them. Well, no, it's it's more to the effect of again. This is somebody who's you know you know the the body of work I've admired, yeah. and yet on the other hand, here's this guy. You know, the, there's that famous say, saying that when you're in a hole and you're trying to get out of that hole, the first thing you do is stop digging. And yet, just last week, here we have Martin. You know, he writes an op-ed. For, uh, you know, the, the New York Times and, you know, proceeds to once again wade into the whole uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, isn't really cinema and how to live in this age where the your local multiplex is filled with franchise films. You know, he actually used the phrase to the effect of it fills me with deep sadness. You know, I like all sorts of movies and I don't, you know, I don't begrudge. If, you know, somebody wants to go see a brainless summer blockbuster, I mean, I, I, one of my favorite times at the movies ever, Aaron, was I went on a hot summer night over to Shopper's World to the, the cinema that was there. 
and in a full house of like five to six hundred people watched uh the original Smokey and the Bandit. Mm. And uh, that movie redefines brain dead, <laughs> but it's fun. And, you know, it, it's, I mean, there's great, you know, silly little performances by Burt Reynolds and Sally Fields and, and Jackie Gleason. I mean, it's not great cinema in any stretch of the imagination, but it's enjoyable. It was a good time at the movies. Now, mind you, when you went outside to your car, it was the most dangerous parking lot I've ever been in my entire right, life. Yeah. Because Everyone's peeling out, you know, doing donuts. No, that's it exactly. Yeah. So sometimes just going to the movies and having a good time, it doesn't have to be great art. And and the fact that he just won't let this go. Gosh, did he happen to go see Joker at all in theaters? Because I think Joker was actually a movie that would be right up his alley as far as the content and the way it's delivered. In fact, it's so interesting you say that because he, as part of some of the interviews he's been doing lately, he talked about how for four years they had offered him Joker. And he looked really hard at it and in the end decided, do I really want to spend, you know, as much time as it's going to make to make this movie to make a comic book movie? And he said no. But the interesting thing is that his longtime producer decided to stick with the project. And she actually wound up producing the thing, which, by the way, is just inches away now from being a billion dollar earner. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it almost mm. looks like it's something that should have come out of Scorsese's filmography. It's well, hell, amazing. I mean, you look at it, you know, you've got, you know, De Niro in there. In fact, what, what for me is, is fascinating about Joker is you basically got De Niro doing the Funhouse Mirror version of Rupert Pupkin, the character he played in, in King of Comedy. Only instead of the Jerry Langford, Johnny Carson character that Jerry Lewis played in the movie, it's De Niro who's playing the Johnny Carson character. So it's just the fact that he's there in the mix helps it feel in a weird sort of way, like a Martin Scorsese movie. All right. So let's try and pull it a bullet in this lame horse if we can. <laughs> and so yeah. I want to ask you, who is Mr. Scorsese speaking to at this moment? Is he trying to reach the general public and say, hey, go to more artsy pictures? Is he trying to speak to fellow directors and filmmakers, uh, you know, like, a, is he trying to reach the studios by saying, start putting some money into some more diverse projects? I mean, who's he trying to convince and of what is he trying to convince them to do? Well, that's a, a fascinating question to ask, because again, this opinion piece ran in the New York Times. And face it, if you've been following the whole Irishman situation, they were trying to get the Irishman in theaters for three weeks before it then uh, became available for streaming on Netflix. And they met with a lot of resistance from the distributors, from the, the, the owners of the various film chains. So, for example, in New York City, they had to rent out the Belasco Theater, you know, the, this great old historic theater, in, in, you know, uh, just off of Broadway. Yeah, but I think part of the problem there with the the distributors was more a factor of the time frame, the, the window of time between when it would be shown in theaters to when it would then premiere on Netflix. Because right now there's the very, very established first year in theaters for, you know, a few months and then you go digital mm -hmm. and then you go to DVD and Blu-ray and all of that happens at a very measured pace. And mm -hmm. to go and jump the gun and, and bypass the 
go from straight from theater for like a month to then be on Netflix and bypass the digital and the Blu-ray and all that stuff that everyone relies on this chain to work so fluidly and so regularly that if you start tweaking with it, then they start getting upset. So if he would have just said, okay, you know, the deal with Netflix, it's not really Scorsese's call, but if Netflix were to say, okay, we'll give you a wider window between the time that it goes from theaters to Netflix, wouldn't that have appeased the people? It's not because it was crowded by Marvel movies. That's, I think, the Mm -hmm. argument he's trying to make is, I couldn't get my theater in because... Marvel was there, and that's just not the case. Mm. It was because Netflix didn't want to budge on their deal, right? It's an interesting point. See, uh, my problem is that as a student of entertainment history, I mean, I remember, for example, in the 1960s, something like The Sound of Music would come out in 1964 and do what is known as a roadshow version. It would play in like one theater in Boston or New York or LA and it and it would play there for months and it was only after it finished a 6 or in some cases a year long run before then multiple prints would become available and the film would then go into general distribution and these days yes you sometimes you know you'll get a, like the premiere in Hollywood and maybe you'll get a week in L.A. and New York, out ahead of the film going into wide release everywhere. And we're talking, you know, some of these movies these days will open, you know, these big, big films will open on 48 to, you know, 5,000 screens around the country simultaneously with the idea of, you know, you get that amazing first weekend gross. So part of this is also that Scorsese, and I feel bad for him because, yes, the business has in fact changed. But the business of entertainment is always changing. If you think about all the theater chains in the late 50s who, you know, wow, okay, so they're making movies in CinemaScope, but let me change my auditorium so it, it, it can show this, you know, on this 100-foot long screen because all movies going forward are going to be made in CinemaScope. And it's like, no, they're not. Some ideas get tried and some ideas, you know, fail because that's the reaction of the marketplace. Yeah, well, I mean, the whole entertainment industry has been revolutionized like five or six different times just in our lifetime. Because we were, when we were kids, we had three channels. You know, there was ABC, NBC, (laughs) and CBS. And it wasn't until Joan Rivers had a late night dispute that Fox was born out of hate. And... uh, That be, and then you get cable channels after that, and, and the networks were like, cable will never work, and HBO is sitting there like, hey, we got a thing going, and all of a sudden you've got food, TV, and you know, nine hundred channels of of stuff, and now it's going online where Apple's all of a sudden making content. It's really not bad. It's, mm-hmm. it's some decent, okay stuff to watch. And it's like, wow, amazing. Uh, Yeah, things keep changing. You better evolve with it or you're left by the wayside going, I remember back in my day when it was all in Orange Grove. (laughs) Okay, to finally pivot back to Marvel here. News since the last time uh, Aaron and I recorded, Peyton Reed has been signed. uh, He's coming back to direct Ant-Man 3, which given what he did with the first two films, I, I think this is good news. We now know uh, when this film is going to come out. It's not going to be in shooting till late 2020, more likely early 2021, which means that Ant-Man likely release date 
is in 2022. In the same window that we got the news about Ant-Man 3, we got news about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And on, on the other hand, on the Sony side of the fence, they're not being vague at all. They're not sort of 2022. We're not sure yet. It's like, no. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse already has a locked-in letter release date of April 8th, 2022. And uh, this story broke on November 1st, which, of course, is after the news in September where Sony and Disney made up and with the idea that, okay, we're going to come together, work together on the, the third Spider-Man movie starring Tom Holland. Sony is definitely got their own Spider-Verse thing going here. In fact, I guess the third Tom Holland film, uh, Spider-Man film, uh, has, has a locked-in release date of July 17, 2021. But before that, we're going to get Venom 2, which, by the way, depending on who you talk to, uh, either start shooting on November 18th at Leavesdown Studio over in England, or officially get started on the 25th of this month. And a lot of the info we had previously about, for example, Shriek coming in as Carnage's sidekick, so to speak, mm-hmm. that seems to be locked in. But but the the more interesting thing, at least for me, is that the Venom 2, which is uh, supposed to be out in theaters October 2nd of 2020, supposedly will feature a cameo by Tom Holland as Peter Parker uh, as Spider-Man. Out ahead of that, we've got the Morbius movie, which is going to be released to theaters July 31st, 2020. And what's just leaked is that J.K. Simmons is going to come back in that movie as J. Jonah Jameson. So we have these two pieces of immediate connective tissue to the Marvel slash Sony slash Columbia Pictures Spider-Man movies of Far From Home and Mm -hmm. Homecoming. But again, with Tom Holland appearing in Venom 2 and with J.K. Simmons appearing in, in Morbius. So they are definitely... You know, it's just sort of like, yes, thank you, Disney. We're, we really appreciate, you know, you putting your might behind, you know, our third Tom Holland Spider-Man movie. But we have plans beyond this. We have a, a future mapped out that takes us down the road well away from what you guys are doing. This could go a couple of different ways. But wouldn't you just be frustrated as all get out at Sony if you were inside the Disney company? Because you work so, so very, very hard to have this beautifully mapped out Uh, all these little threads that interconnect all of your movies. And then like a parasite, Sony latches on their little Spider-Verse with Venom and Morbius. And God, I hope Morbius turns out to be a great movie because if it's horrible, Mm -hmm. then people are going to, you know, like the average viewer who doesn't know how the studio relationships work and all that stuff, uh, they may go Mm -hmm. see that and go, well, that Marvel movie sucked. And it wasn't Mm -hmm. the, you know, MCU shiny golden version you know it was the sony mm-hmm. mcu that they kind of la- latched onto who knows what the, what sony ends up deciding to do later on but if they just are now can be considered part of this thing that they did not help create it's all established and now sony jumps on and goes yeah we we got a part of this because of uh that one deal through that one guy 
Spider-Man. So now is is this the trigger that makes Disney go, okay, how much cash do we have in the vault right this second so we can just put it in a pile, slide it across the table to Sony and go, just give it, give them back to us so you don't screw it up. When they, they signed Tyrese Gibson, I, I guess he's playing uh, the FBI agent Simon Stroud for the Morbius movie. But when he signed to be part of the film, they got him for a three-picture contract with the obvious intent that if the first Morbius movie is a hit, this can then become a trilogy. And I think it would be so much cooler if it were, if it were to morph into a Morbius versus blade thing, because we've got MCU working on blade and it's like, why, why can't you guys just get your stuff together? It would be so much better Mm. that way, but oh, well, it's fine. I guess the thing that kind of concerns me again, we've got this April, 2020 release date for Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse and, on one hand, this past year has been absolutely terrible for animated sequels. Lego Movie 2, the second part, likewise, How to Train Your Dragon 3, The Hidden World. Big profile films with the, the might of promotional department of the majors behind them, and both of those underperformed. On the other hand, what, 10 days from today, Frozen 2 opens in theaters all over the country, and the, the conventional wisdom is... This thing is going to make at least a billion dollars. So yeah, but weren't they projected to make a you know Lego Movie Two was projected to make a lot, and How to Train Your Dragon Three was projected to make a lot, and they didn't, and that's why they're considered failures. So if it's yeah. projected to make a billion dollars, it only makes seven hundred and fifty million. Therefore, it will be a failure in someone's eyes, but yeah. maybe not the bean yeah. counters necessarily because they'll go, "Hey, man, we actually made money on this deal. Shut up." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of the, the billion-dollar earners, and obviously this past year, movies like Endgame and last year was Infinity Wars. The two gentlemen who wrote the screenplay for those, those films, uh, Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely, have been recently doing some interviews. They talked about how when you have a giant special effects-filled epic, it's important to sort of make sure that that you you are actually tying. You know, you're getting your audience emotionally invested. And so how do you do that? And it's, well, again, obviously it's not the giant effects filled battle scenes. It's the little quiet human moments. And the ones they cited, uh, for example, for Endgame, they talked about Tony talking with his daughter at the lakeside cabin or Thor through the magic of time travel, getting to talk with his long dead mother or Steve Rogers in that dark office, being able to, to look through and see Peggy Carter alive again, or for that matter, at the very same time in the movie, Tony Stark walking with his dad out to the car and the two of them having what Howard thinks is just sort of a strange conversation. And Tony is having this really emotional filled uh, conversation. And it's those moments that tie you into the story that then make you during, you know, scenes like the giant battle scene at the end of Endgame when there's so much going on and there's so much action and it can get confusing. It's hard to keep track of characters, but it's like characters you're invested in, you'll make that effort to find them on the canvas. You think about a movie like Man of Steel mm. and you have, you know, the famous battle scene with Kal-El and, and Zod where you know they're fighting all over metropolis and knocking down uh, you know skyscrapers and, and and that sort of thing and it's epic but you're not necessarily tied into the story or or more to the point 
as a member of the audience, you're thinking, wow, aren't there people in those buildings that are falling down? Mm -hmm. These two gentlemen also wrote the screenplay for Civil War. Mm -hmm. The Battle at the Airport, which is a wonderful action piece. But if you think about the, the one that really registers emotionally, that's Steve and Tony in the bunker after Tony's... You know, seeing that, that, that video, which reveals that Bucky, you know, while he was under the programming, killed his parents. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you suddenly have this guy who feels betrayed by Steve because Steve reveals, yeah, I've known this for a while. At the same time, he's, he's grieving the loss of his parents again. And Steve, on the other hand, is putting himself between Tony and Bucky to protect a friend who, yes, did this horrible thing, but didn't do it of his own volition. And... That scene, at least for me, plays so much more powerfully and is so much more memorable than, you know, what, that 10 or 15 minute long action set piece in Man of Steel, where it's just sort of like, oh, they're flying through the air and there goes another skyscraper. It's a battle literally on a city-sized playing field. But I'll be damned if I can tell you the beats of the thing now. Well, see, I would end up comparing it rather to Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice because it's two heroes going against one another, like Civil War Mm -hmm. is two heroes going together. The only problem with that Mm -hmm. is it always ends in a damn Martha punchline, so I can't. Uh, I don't know if 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 you're aware of the how it should have ended animated series. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Oh, God, I love the, you know, when they cut back to, to Batman and Superman in that cafe, and it's just, your mother's name is Martha, my mother's name is Martha. Those things are so much more entertaining, at least to me, than the actual Warner Brothers movies. And speaking of which, the other thing that Marcus and Mephili pointed out, that the key difference between the Marvel movies and the DC films is that so many of the DC characters have secret identities that have to be protected. They're part of the character's mythos and, you know, they're, they're, you know, kind of driving force of how they do what they do. Whereas Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, when they were creating a lot of the, the iconic Marvel characters that we know and love today, back in the sixties for the, the comic book company beyond Peter Parker can you think of a you know a significant uh you know Marvel character that has a secret identity or hmm you know I've actually never really considered that as a mm-hmm. thing to be aware of so mm-hmm. if you were to go into purely the Spider-Man universe almost everybody's got a mm-hmm. secret identity you know Black Cat's got one and Green Goblin one two and three and the Hobgoblin you know it's all based on secret identities and then those identities being revealed but Fantastic Four you got Mr. Fantastic Reed Richards everybody knows Mm -hmm. the the identities of the Fantastic Four they're celebrities so to speak Mm -hmm. so yeah almost everybody's kind of out in the open so to speak at least from the screenwriter point of view what what they pointed out is that the problem when your character has a secret identity is you now are forced as you're writing the script, to carve out time within your your storyline to service that, to create the scene at the party where Bruce Wayne is gathering, you know, is able to gather information that, that Batman couldn't, or that, that you have Clark Kent observing some sort of disaster happening and trying to figure out how to get out of the room to, to then change to be Superman. Whereas what they talk about with the, with the beauty of the, the Marvel comic book series 
is when when you take that away, and then their argument is that sometimes a, a secret identity will eat up a third of your screen time. <laughs> okay. Whereas yeah. you know, if you did somebody like Steve Rogers, the fact that he's Cap is relatively well known. The beauty of that is you don't need that screen time for secret identity. You can then explore other aspects of the character that make them genuinely interesting. Like, you know, for example, with Steve Rogers, the fact that he's, a you know, this guy from the 1940s who what makes him unique in today's world is that he will not bend. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, believes strongly in his convictions and he will dig in his heels, you know, sort of in, in that Gary Cooper kind of high noon way. And that's what makes him different and interesting. But again, you know, that that's, you know, we're arguing about, uh, you know, movies where, again, you've got two hours or in the case of like Endgame, three hours of screen time, but you have a billion characters to service. And um, that then uh, is what makes the Marvel series that are being prepped for Disney Plus interesting because, you know, each of those are going to have six to eight episodes and you know that much more screen time to service characters and by the way when when Aaron and i get back from this commercial break we'll talk a little bit about the very first show that that's just begun production for the marvel stuff for disney plus I don't know if you saw the, the photo that got tweeted out from the set of uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier this past week. I have not. I've been sitting here watching the Disney Plus clock count down for like the last five days. That's all I've been watching. Nancy was just telling me earlier this evening that what, it goes live at 3 a.m. Uh, West Coast time. So I guess that's 6 a.m. East Coast. Okay, well, oh. maybe I will take a, a little nap between now and then. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier officially being in production a week ago today on, on November 4th. Downside is we don't have an air date. Like, all we know in regard to this particular Marvel Studios production for Disney Plus is that the show will become available for streaming sometime in the fall of 2020. Also, in much the same way that you and I are having to sort of deal with waiting a week between the individual installments of The Watchmen, Aaron, evidently uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier is going to be released much the same way that The Mandalorian is going to be released. That Mandalorian, the first week they, they release an episode on Tuesday, an episode on Friday, and then after that, it's every Friday going forward until the, the first series is complete and but the upside is they're already shooting season two. Right. I'm actually very happy for that because I usually end up in the old Netflix way when whenever mm -hmm. the defenders either, you know, by themselves or as a group dropped their shows mm -hmm. on Netflix, I would binge through it in an afternoon. No problem. Mm -hmm. And. I am actually glad that Disney is telling me, you know, no, you're a fat kid, no more chocolate. You can only have one piece of chocolate. You got to wait a week before you can have another piece of okay. chocolate. Sit down, fat kid. Go for a jog. That's what you need to do between now and next Friday is go for a jog. Um, so mm -hmm. it keeps me from sitting on the couch and watching an entire series in a matter of like a six to eight hour time frame. But beyond that, and this is the really good thing, 
is Mm -hmm. because it's being doled out to me one piece at a time, it's going to live for, you know, a month, a month and a half, maybe two months. If it was six episodes, you get a month and a half. If it's eight episodes, you get two months. But Mm -hmm. that also means that the wait to the next season is also like two months shorter now. And the extra beauty part of all of that is my brain is actually going to retain some of that information versus when I binge it. You know, that was a problem I always Mm -hmm. had with any of the defenders. I'd binge it, watch it, and then I'd forget most of it by the time the next season came around. So I'd have to either rewatch it or just hope that nothing from season two relied on a lot of information from season one I may have forgotten. It's so interesting you say that because just yesterday I watched the 80 episodes of BoJack Horseman, which became available for streaming on October 26th. And it had be, you're right. It had been so long between when I had seen season five that it took, honestly, two and three different episodes to finally sort of get back into the rhythm yeah. and the style of the show. Right. And at the same time, it was one of these things where they would be referencing things that it's like, oh, wait a minute, right. That was something that was mentioned in season four, but it'd been so long between shows that that wasn't necessarily front of mind and wasn't quite the fun viewing experience that I I remembered. So I I get what you're saying. I do have a feeling that as the whole online viewing model, this a la carte mode that we've got where everybody's got their own pile of content between Netflix and, Mm -hmm. and all the other ones that are out there. I think that's the one thing that may change the most is how it's delivered. I think there's a couple like Apple's trying it right now where when they released their their product, it was like, here's the first three episodes of everything. And then after that, you got to wait a week. And Mm -hmm. part of that is from a business side, you need people to come back next month and pay another, you know, however many X dollars for your subscription. No, no, absolutely. You can't just let them binge it all on, on day one, because if you don't have anything left for the second month, there's no reason to come back and give them another little pile of money. So for the business model on their side, yeah, it makes perfect sense to release it one week at a time make you savor it over time versus just slurping it all down in one gluttonous afternoon and then being upset as a viewer. Well, I got to wait a whole now 12 months before the next season comes out. And honestly, Jim, if I could have my way, I would have the Falcon and winter soldier as a daily, mm-hmm. like soap opera where they just show up on mm-hmm. a set, roll tape, roll sound, get what they can throw it on the air and five days a week, for the rest of my life, just, you know, Falcon and Winter Soldier, if they could. You know, you were just talking about the the Netflix shows, the Defenders, you know, Jessica Jones, Daredevil, you know, and the like. What was it? I, I want to say on the last show, we were just talking about how Cloak and Dagger had just been shut down on Freeform. And Freeform had taken a pass on the Ghost Rider pilot. So it just sort of like, okay, so I get it. Disney and Marvel are just going to concentrate on Disney Plus. And, you know, the, the Marvel will do these long-form, you know, limited series. And yet, just last week, suddenly news broke that here's Marvel's Hellstrom, which I guess began filming in Vancouver last month and will continue through February of 2020 up there. But that's going to bow on Hulu, 10 episodes and brand new episodes at a yet-to-be-determined date in 2020. And getting back to to what Disney and Marvel are up to now, what's kind of interesting, at least for me, is the whole 
slippy, slidey aspect of uh, with Feige basically calling the shots as to what's going to be a movie and what is going to end up as a limited series over at uh, at Disney Plus. And in fact, uh, just in the past week or so, Feige was quoted. I want to say it was a piece for the Atlantic about how uh, he, it, you know, they had agreed with, with Jeremy Renner that at one point there was going to be a stink, uh, Hawkeye standalone film. And about a year or so back, he had to, he called Jeremy in the office and said, look, I apologize. I know we talked about doing this standalone movie, but I really feel that here's an opportunity with Disney Plus. And we get more to the point, we don't have to tell Hawkeye's story in just two hours. We can tell it over six episodes, eight episodes. We can we can take our time and really do a good job with it. And he said, to Jeremy Renner's credit, he got it. He got the idea that they were going to do something that was film level, but they were going to do it as a long form story. And so he's on board. Now, mind you, we don't know when that's shooting, but it's supposed to be ready for streaming for fall of 2021. Did you see where, I guess we haven't even, haven't even started shooting the Loki limited series, but they're already talking about the second season. My goodness. They've got grand plans for everybody and everything, don't they? They do, they do. But what's interesting is that the reason they want, the, or they're looking to do the the second season of Loki, is that that's going to tie in with Thor: Love and Thunder. the The other little weird bit of news, and you're going to have to explain this to me, Aaron, because I I I don't get this. But supposedly, as part of Thor: Love and Thunder, our, our buddy Taika, he really wants to bring Throg into the film. What is Throg? Thorfrog. 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 Yeah, it's it's a frog mm-hmm. that uh, has yeah. the has that. Hello, my honey. Hello, my darling. Hello, Lord of Thunder. Oh, okay. <laughs> not 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 quite that bad, but if you remember Spaceballs with the, when the alien comes out and does the little routine of the Warner Brothers frog, mm-hmm. uh, that's what it always reminds me of. But no, it's it's uh, a little frog that's. I don't remember if Thor is turned into the frog by Loki, because Loki always does things like that that in mm-hmm. the in the mm-hmm. old storylines. But yeah, Throg would be just uh, Thor turned into a frog, and usually he's got a little helmet on top of his head, so you know it's Thor Frog, not just a regular frog. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, again, folks, that. That doesn't come out till November, uh, in fact, November 5th, 2021. So we're- You know what, though? To, to be fair about the whole thing, if you would have said that the amazing Spider-Ham would have showed up in a, in a movie at any point in the, like the next 50 years, I would have said, you're a filthy, rotten liar. Don't get my hopes up like that. And, you know, we had them just a little while ago in Spider-Verse. So crazier things have happened. And if Throg were to show up, I would be all for it. Yeah, totally. Just for a moment. That is an excellent point. All right, folks. I think at this point we're actually caught up on the Marvel-related news that's going on there, and and I'm hoping to God we're putting the whole Martin Scorsese thing in the rearview mirror. No, he's gonna he's gonna actually get a, a doctorate in uh, arguing that Marvel films are not, and he's gonna be teaching lectures. Mm. And if you'd like to attend, I'm sure it's only gonna be a nominal fee of like five hundred dollars per course. 
And speaking of attending, uh, by the way, if you are in the Central Florida area, the Holidays at Universal Orlando event that Dustin Fuse and I are doing this coming weekend, i uh, got to tell you, hotel packages sold out. There's, there's no room at the inn there. But according to what Tammy at Storybook Destinations has told me, uh, there are there is still room on some of the walking tours. Uh, if you folks wanted to join us, reach out to Tammy at Storybook Destination. At the very least, folks who enjoy this podcast would probably enjoy Sunday when we're in Islands of Adventure and wandering around Marvel's Superhero Island, which now I'm going to spend a ridiculous amount of time looking for Throg. <laughs> But speaking of the podcast, we've got Disney Dish with Lentesto. We've got Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor. We've got uh, Looking at Lucasfilm with Dan Z. We've got the I Want That with Michelle Valladolid. And again, I just mentioned the Universal Joint thing I do with Dustin Fuse. And of course, we, you have the podcast you're listening to right now, the Marvelous Disney uh, podcast. Head over to iTunes and rate and recommend this show. You get out over to Bandcamp and subscribe, and that then makes this possible for you know Aaron and I to subscribe to HBO, so we get to watch Watchmen. And did they tease episode five at all? Is there anything coming that I need to be aware of? Or if you have not seen three and four, there's so much. But I got to tell you, I love the title of episode three that was called "She Was Killed by Space Junk" because. <laughs> There's a there there's a reference later on where I almost fell on the floor laughing by what it could have possibly meant with the title of "She Was Killed by Space Junk." Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. I, 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 well, they had me from the first episode where they did the what is it? The line from "Poor Judd is Dead" yeah. in Oklahoma. You know. It's summer and we're running out of ice. So anyway, folks, we're running out of time here. So thanks for listening. And Aaron and I will hopefully be back with a brand new episode soon. Till then, take care. More Marvelous Disney will be coming soon. In the meantime, check out one of the other great shows found only on the Jim Hill Media Network.